So it starts, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Sorry, I didn't, do, didn't get all the pronunciations right, but that's a new one. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountain, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told, and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not depart him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he had mercy on you. And he went away, began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. And they came, one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she might be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who'd suffered much under many physicians. She'd spent all that she had. But she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had the reports about Jesus, or she heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him immediately, turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. 
And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping, wailing loudly. And when he'd entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but is sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Talk, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kami, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And he immediately... The girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, let's pray. Father, thanks for your grace. Thanks for the songs we got to sing. Uh, just, Just reminding ourselves of your good news. Thank you for your word. My hope and prayer, Lord, is that we'd be encouraged, challenged, edified, um, convicted. God, there's, there's a lot here to digest. There's a lot here to reflect upon um, these three stories of your interaction with, with real people in real situations and real struggle. And God, we might find ourselves in similar kind of difficulty. Um, maybe things are going well, maybe things aren't, but God, we're all in these different places trying to figure out how do we, how do we approach you? What does it look like to be in relationship with God in a real way in this world with the different questions we have and struggles we have? And, and so God, we just want to be faithful. And so God, use this time to, to bring us together that we might grow in our knowledge of you, but also in our love for you. And that, that might translate into us living living this thing out and the places in which you've placed us and the people that you've put in front of us. And so God, we thank you once again for your grace, that you're good to us and we don't deserve it. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. So what's happening in all these verses? So there's two stories of basically Jesus getting out of a boat and immediately being presented with all these needs, all these people coming to him. And there's three specific needs. There was this afflicted man. There was a crowd where Jairus, a ruler in the synagogue, had a sick daughter, and she's dying. I can't imagine. And then there was a third story of this woman who is sick, and and she displayed this faith, as Jesus called it, and, and he heals her. He heals her. But but think about it. Jesus is overwhelmed with all these human needs with these real needs from real people. Not saying he was overwhelmed in the sense that he couldn't accomplish the task at hand, but but that is to say there's this constant, constant barrage of human suffering in front of him. And it seems to find its way to Jesus consistently. You know, this isn't isn't the kind of ministry I think that many Christians want to sign up for when they, they, you know, God send me, I think of Isaiah in chapter 6 where he's like, send me, Lord. And it's like, you're going to go to a people that are never going to listen to you. And it's like, this isn't the kind of ministry that many Christians sign up for. This isn't the clean-cut, you know, put-together Bible study that we would all envision. You know, if you're a community group leader, man, I just want people to come in. We're going to parse Greek words. The, the worst prayer request is, man, I didn't pray enough this week. It's like, that's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. 
Not everyone's relatively nice, put together, understanding, and appreciative. Jesus is ministering in the margins. And listen, when we look at the Gospels, this is where we see Jesus doing a lot of his ministry. To the broken people, to needy people, to sick people, to skeptics, to people on the fringe. People that are screwed up and they know it. And so what we're going to look at today is the fear of this afflicted man, the shame of the woman with the issue of blood, and the guilt of Jairus. And ultimately my hope is that we're going to see the patience and the compassion um, that Jesus displays when he interacts with each marginalized, afflicted person in this story. And then maybe we can even see how Jesus has graciously pursued us as well. Not because we're awesome, but because he is that compassionate, faithful, and gracious creator. So the first thing I want to look at um, is the fear of the afflicted man. And if you'll notice, I mean, just trying to really, as I was praying and reflecting on this text, there's a lot of different ways we could go, but I just really started to think about um, you know, my counselor talks about how, you know, the three emotions that, show, that showed up at the fall in Genesis 3 were fear, shame, and guilt. Those are the three emotions that Jesus never experienced because he was sinless. And, and I think we see these emotions playing out in these three different stories. And I think we see them playing out in our lives. And my hope is that we can see Jesus' redemption and pursuit and healing of those things. And so the fear of the afflicted man in verse 1 through 20 I just, if you, if you got your Bible, um, look at verse 5 again. Just think about this. Imagine this picture. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Think about that. Can you imagine? Think about this guy. What's, what's the equivalent to this guy in your context? Right? Maybe the drug addict. Um, a person consumed with something to the point that they become a different kind of person and do things they would have never done, you know, leaving their friends and family speechless, heartbroken, in distress. How would you minister to this demon-possessed guy? You know, what did this demoniac do? Verses 6 and 7, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. I just found it so interesting that this man has a better view of Jesus than most churchgoers. He doesn't view Jesus as simply a teacher or a rabbi or a philosopher of sorts. What does this miserable demon-possessed man call Jesus? He says, you are the Son of the Most High God. Often, I've just found it's broken people who, who can diagnose truth much better and more clearly sometimes than we can. Why? This guy's broken. He's suffering. He's afflicted with unclean spirits. And, and guess what? He knows he's in need. He knows he doesn't have it all together. This man wasn't living in this illusion that he was in control of his life that he had things figured out, that he could make for himself a good life. We often live in that illusion. He was in need, and he acknowledged Jesus for who he rightly was. And the afflicted man was afraid. He was afraid. Who knows if it was the demons or a mixture of the man and the demons, but hear what he says in verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. And really, these last words are so interesting. 
do not torment me. Do not torment me. Sure, the demons know they're a direct offense to God, but even the man in his right mind also knows that he's unclean. He knows that he's unclean. He would also have known that he's unworthy, he's dirty, he's defiled. And so he approaches God in fear, and not a healthy fear, not an awestruck, holy fear, a fear that comes from a place of, you know, his fear comes from a place of, I don't think that you could ever love someone like me. I'm unclean. I'm not who I'm supposed to be, and you deserve to crush me. How many of us, you know, now or at some point feared God in that kind of way? I mean, I think about, you know, there's whole evangelistic strategies that are built around this type of fear. You know, turn or burn, baby. Like, like we, we play on people's, people's fear. In that, there's not a real love for God. There's not a real desire to know Him personally. It's just, what do I have to do to escape the wrath of hell? But what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Jesus, in this story basically says, you do not have to fear. You do not have to fear. Jesus delivers this man of his affliction. Jesus commands the spirits that are tormenting him to leave. Are you unclean, sir? Yes. Are you who I made you to be? Absolutely not. Are you afflicted, tormented, sinful? Yes, yes, and yes. And Jesus said, you do not have to fear. Verse 8, for he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And something odd happens. Something a lot of the commentators, and even if you read this or heard this just now, it probably sounds a bit odd, but something odd happens. Something that's horrendous to, to many skeptics and commentators. Jesus sends these unclean spirits to a herd of pigs, and the pigs ultimately die. And the, and the text says that there was roughly 2,000 of them. Why? To some, it seems terribly cruel. But why is this significant? And I'm not going to belabor this point, but what we see is that the value of human life compared to that of the animals is so different. That although the death of these pigs is tragic, yes, the death of this one man's soul is far more devastating to Jesus. That's so intriguing, so interesting. So we see the fear of the afflicted man, we see how Jesus addresses that fear. We see how Jesus pursues the man, heals him, says you don't have to fear. And then I want to talk about the shame that we see with the woman with this issue of blood. So if you've got your Bible, verses 25 through 28, if we look there again, it says, there is this woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She'd suffered much under many physicians. And think about, think about how this lady must feel. She'd spent all that she had. And she's no better. But she only grew worse. And she'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, just desperate. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'm going to be made well. You know, I just want us to think about the nature of shame. The nature of shame. What does shame say? intrinsically inside of us. Basically, shame is, this, is the emotion that says, I, I just don't belong. I just don't belong. I don't measure up. I'm not welcome. I don't have the goods. And so we perform, and we spin the image, and we try to be something we're not because we're filled with shame. 
One writer said that shame is relational. Shame emphasizes sin's effect on self-identity. Who am I? Who am I? The first response, the writer goes on, the first response of Adam and Eve to their sinful condition, what do they do right after they sin? They hid from God. We hide in our shame. And consequently, we hide from one another. But conversely, Christ's unhindered openness to the Father God was both a model for life and the means for removing our shame. See, this woman, she had a constant discharge of blood, the text says, which would have made her sickly, yes, but it was also embarrassing, shameful, and culturally it would have made her ceremonially unclean. She wouldn't have been able to go to the synagogue. She wouldn't have been able to go to worship. She wasn't only unclean because of her sin, she was unclean because of her sickness. This, this in effect, she couldn't help it. She couldn't do anything about it. And all the more, this compiled and compounded her sense of, I don't belong. How could anyone love me? I don't measure up. And interestingly, we see the disciples. <laughs> These guys never, rarely get it, right? Verse 31, And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples are like, this crowd's all around. What are you talking about? Why are you stopping? We've got something to do. The disciples are confused because Jesus slowed down. Jesus slowed down long enough. He was patient enough to look for the woman with the blood issue. The disciples, see, they're excited about the crowds. Right? They could tell Jesus was gaining popularity. They were getting to be part of all this. And now they're on their way to get something done. And what does Jesus do again? Jesus stops. Jesus stops. Jesus slows down. And unlike the disciples, Jesus doesn't get distracted by the crowds. Jesus doesn't let the busyness around him distract him from the person in front of him. There was this woman, this one woman, a woman that others had overlooked, a woman others wouldn't have given the time of day, but not Jesus. The disciples, once again, were confused. There's these people all around you. You're sitting here asking who touched you. What is up with this? And look at Jesus' response in verse 32. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This lady, who was used to just being rejected, discarded. The woman was used to being disappointed. In shame and fear, she falls before Jesus' feet and she tells him everything. She tells him everything. And what I love about this is, listen, Jesus listens to her story. Jesus listens to her story. Jesus cares about her story. Jesus cares about your story. Jesus listens. He cares. Verse 34, And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What we see is a God who shows compassion, patience, and grace with this woman. She'd almost given up. 
but ultimately He heals her physically. He heals her spiritually. He heals her emotionally. And so it's a comprehensive, holistic healing. Jesus ministers to this woman on the fringe who's broken. She'd spent all she had. She'd seen all the specialists. Jesus met her needs with grace. And then there's this third guy. See, Jairus, the guilt of Jairus, this guy, he could not save his daughter. Look in verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. He implored him earnestly, saying, My daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. Jesus went with him. The crowds followed. They want to see another miracle, right? They want to see something spectacular. They don't necessarily have faith in God. They just want to see something exciting. And they're all around him. And this religious official, Jairus, his daughter's dying. He goes after Jesus. He implores him to help. He implores him to heal. Please fix my problem. Please heal my daughter, my beloved daughter. Move on my behalf. And Jesus starts following him. Jesus understands the severity of the situation. He doesn't misunderstand what's at stake. But what happens? The woman with the issue of blood touches Jesus' cloak and Jesus stops to interact with her. He listens to her story. See, the crowd's all around him. The people want to see Jesus raise Jairus' daughter back to life. Jairus, I'm sure, is just freaking out. I mean, can you imagine? His daughter is dying. His little girl is dying. The disciples are probably a bit anxious themselves. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't tell the woman to wait. Wait, I'll come back. I've got something important to do. Wait. He doesn't tell the woman to wait. He doesn't disregard what's happened and move on. Again, Jesus doesn't let the busyness around him distract him from the person in front of him. He stops. He waits. He listens. And he heals. But in the midst of that, I mean, think about the tension. In the midst of that, Jairus is standing by, probably confused, probably a bit angry, probably pretty frustrated. Then what happens? Excuse me. Verse 34. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So let's try, to, let's try to imagine where Jairus must, must be in this moment, right? I can't imagine how he must have felt. What's going through his head. How he's feeling in this moment. See, I'm sure there was a myriad of emotions, but one of the prominent emotions must have been guilt. And probably secondly, a bit of regret. A lot of regret. What if I would have done something else, right? I came to this guy, Jesus. Everyone said he could heal my daughter, but maybe I could have done something else or asked someone else to come see my daughter. Guilt at not being there with her when she died. Not being with his daughter at her last moments. He couldn't fix the problem. Him, a religious official, someone who was supposed to know what to do. He was helpless. I just can't imagine. And think about it. Often, Jesus doesn't work. Jesus doesn't work often in the ways and in the times that we'd prefer for him to. 
right? Sometimes it's a mystery to us. Sometimes it doesn't go the way that we would like it to go or the way that we'd imagine it would go. In a world where sin abounds, where suffering abounds, and because we aren't able to know and see all the things that God does, it can be difficult for us to understand when, we, when we're faced with suffering, when we're faced with uncertainty. It can be difficult for us to have this kind of faith that, that, that Jesus is talking about in this text. But look at what Jesus does here. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, think about this, in the midst of that, do not fear, only believe. And I want us to focus here. Sir, your daughter's dead. And Jesus responds, brother, don't fear, only believe. Was Jesus being insensitive? Did Jesus misunderstand? Again, no. But we know that Jesus, being the Son of God, has a different perspective than Jairus does. Jesus is operating from a much larger and broader perspective. He sees the big picture, as it were. See, we get stuck in the moments, don't we? Especially ones like this. When you see the ones you love more than anything in the world suffer and get sick and it's terrible and we get stuck in those moments. We don't see the way Jesus sees. Which is what leads Jesus to say, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. One commentator wrote this. He said, this is the challenge before Jairus and before everyone who meets Jesus. To, be to believe only in what circumstances allow or to believe in the God who makes all things possible. One thing only is necessary, to believe. The present tense of the Greek imperative means to keep believing, to hold on to faith rather than give in to despair. With respect to his daughter's circumstances, Jairus' future is closed. But with respect to Jesus, it is still open. Faith is not something Jairus has, but something that has him. Carrying him from despair to hope. Jesus' authoritative word to Jairus is not to fear, but to believe. See, I think as a church, we often put on the strappings of religion. We want to appear a certain way, right? There's still kind of uh, a cultural, sometimes, you know, we, we get things out of being a part of religious communities, community, friends, and all that kind of stuff. We put on the strappings of it. But in reality, we are the Lord of our life. We think we're in control. We want to rule all the details and all the nuances. As long as God helps me get what I want, I'm good. That's many of what I struggle with and what we struggle with. And this isn't Christianity. God has perspective and understanding beyond what we know. And what's encouraging is 
We see the nature of our God here in this text, but you know, Paul writes in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Think about that. For those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, whether it feels like it or not, whatever you're facing, whatever is pressing on you, wherever you find yourself, if you are in Christ, God is working for your good. God loves you. God loves you. And I just think, you know, we're, we're, we all struggle with fear, shame, and guilt to some degree. And I just start to wonder and think, what if there was one who took on ultimate fear? You know, what if someone did make a way for humans to have the ability to be cured from guilt once and for all? What would it look like for someone to rid us of our shame? And friends, we're reminded that Jesus doesn't love us in some arbitrary, elusive, or vague kind of way. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus wept. Jesus was hungry. Jesus watched his friends get falsely imprisoned and die at the hands of sinful people. Jesus experienced injustice. Jesus was poor and spent time with the poor. Jesus suffered. And at the cross, Jesus takes on ultimate fear and ultimate guilt and ultimate shame and crushes them. For those who put their faith in Jesus, like individuals in this story that we read about, they're gifted the gift of life as it was meant to be, life with God. Because apart from God, we're all relationally broken. And that relational brokenness infects every part of our life. And because of the cross, we're welcomed back in. Our relationship with God is mended and ultimately our relationships with ourselves can be mended. Our relationships with others can be mended as well. Sin makes it so that we don't see the world as we ought to see it. Fear, shame, and guilt cloud the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And my hope for all of us is that we see the compassion and patience of Jesus and that it changes our hearts. That it will give us a vision of a better way forward. To be the church, to be the people of God. And that firstly, and, and we have to start here, that we would first know the love of God that is for us. That you would know that God loves you. Sometimes we look at Matthew 28 and we say, man, we're going to go and make disciples. But first, we have to be a disciple and we have to know that God loves you. And secondly, that that would cause us to love and care for God's people. And so as we close, I think there's a few points of application that we can reflect on in this text. And the first one is just reflect on the fact that Jesus ministers in the margins. Meaning what? I mean, we can begin, you know, to, to, to the, the unknown places, the unchurched people, the fringe people, the people that don't look, talk, and act like you do. Does our ministry extend to the least of these? Are we always with people that are just like us? Is there a systemic struggle or a type of person that we avoid? Those people over there. Guess what? Jesus would have been with those people. Jesus ministered in the margins, and we're called to as well. 
Secondly, I think another thing we can reflect on is identifying ourselves in this story. We're obviously not Jesus. And so are you the fear-filled man in the first part? Riddled with sins, overwhelmed and afraid. Are you like the woman in the second story? Things that you've done or things that have been done to you have so defined your identity that you're filled with shame. Or maybe you're always riddled with guilt. And sometimes you try and leverage your guilt to be a better version of yourself. You feel awful and so you try to fix yourself, hoping that God will love you more. Which do you identify the most with? And I think the last thing we can do is understand that the gospel of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that he he can remove fear, shame, and guilt. Jesus says you need not fear. Christ pursues broken people like you. Jesus won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He's with you. He's walked the path of brokenness before you, and he's done so perfectly so that you, you can be welcomed in. You need not be filled with shame. Because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, friends, you're accepted by God. You do have a place with God and with the people of God. And lastly, you need not be crushed with guilt. The cross is the brutal reminder that Jesus took the wrath of God on himself because of our sins. Instead of running from God and trying to fix yourself, run towards him in your struggle. And like the prodigal in Luke 15, the father longs for you to come home as you are and be slowly transformed into his image and into his likeness. God loves you. He pursues you. He's the God that can rid you of your fear and your shame and your guilt. The gospel is that big and that good. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. I am a, I'm, a, I'm a sinner in need of grace. I'm, I'm a mess. And just even preaching this this morning, I'm reminded that, Lord, I often just want to be with people like me. I want to be comfortable. And God, you know, if you operated like I did, I wouldn't be a Christian because you would have discarded me. But Lord, you pursue and care for and minister to those in need. And so I pray wherever we find ourselves, whether we operate often from from a posture of fear or shame or guilt, that we would sense your invitation to wholeness and to freedom. It doesn't happen overnight. That doesn't happen in an instance. But Lord, that's the offer on the table, that there is a way forward. And the gospel is the the one and only thing that offers that, a new identity, a mending of relationship with you. And so I pray, God, that we'd see the beauty in that and that it would change us. We ask this in your name. Amen.